Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 113, Twilight 2000, and Aquilar. This week, our tour will take us from the post-apocalyptic to the Spanish medieval, and you don't even have to change your outfit. Yeah, all right, that was my attempt to be cute, and since that didn't work, why don't we just crank up the tour bus and get to today's first topic. Twilight 2000, with the tag role-playing in the devastation of World War III, is a post-apocalyptic military tabletop role-playing game designed by Frank Chadwick, Dave Nielsen, Lauren K. Wiseman, and Lester W. Smith. The first edition of the game was published by Game Designers Workshop and released in 1984. The basic premise of Twilight 2000 is that the United States-NATO alliance has been fighting a long, drawn-out war with the Soviet Union-Warsaw Pact alliance, which has also included a brief but devastating nuclear war. As one would expect, all of the consequences of war, especially nuclear war, are present in the game. The players take on the roles of survivors of that war. Now, to understand why this game was so popular at the time, and frankly, why it's continued to be so for so many years, you need to understand the politics of the time in the real world. Now, since this isn't a world history podcast, I'll save you the doctoral thesis on the geopolitics going on between the U.S. and the Soviet Union at the time. But the gist of it is we were still in the midst of the Cold War, which had been running nonstop since basically the end of World War II. Now, I'll grant you that by the mid-1980s, things had begun to thaw somewhat. But in the early 80s, when the game was being developed there were still fears that another world war was a possibility. And most of that was due to the continued expansion of the Soviet Union through Eastern Europe, combined with their policies towards the U.S. and its NATO allies. Now, in fairness, the Soviet Union most likely saw the same possibilities, though their reasoning would most likely have been due to the U.S.-NATO restrictions placed upon them and their allies, which they considered to be unfair and aggressive. One could also look back to several instances during the 1950s and 1960s between the U.S. and Soviet Union that nearly brought the two sides to war. Long story short, there was a time where it would have been completely plausible for life to imitate the art, though it obviously, and thankfully if we're being honest here, didn't happen. So Twilight 2000 wound up being an alternate history game, and we'll expand more on that as we go through today's deep dive. Now, before we get any deeper into the background of the game, let's work through the release history. I mentioned that the original version released in 1984, but there were two additional editions released by GDW, with the second edition dropping in 1990, and another that's been dubbed version 2.2 in 1993. And the alternate history that GDW had to produce to keep the game fresh through the years allowed them to produce other games, such as 2300 AD and Merc 2000. Over the history of GDW stewardship, over 40 different supplements were produced for Twilight 2000, including supplements allowing for players to be from other nations in the various alliances. Survivor's Guide to the United Kingdom, released in 1990, is just one example of those releases. There were also a number of scenarios published, which I included in the total I gave. Howling Wilderness, released in 1988, is an example of one of those. 
For the record, all three of the GDW versions of the game are still available, though only in PDF formats and only online. Far Future Enterprises is responsible for the reprints, and you can check out their website, farfuture.net, if you're interested. By the turn of the century, other post-apocalyptic games had begun to take over the market, and Twilight 2000 began to take a back seat. However, in 2006, 93 Games Studio announced they'd picked up the license, and they released the third edition in 2008. Titled Twilight 2013, it changed the background, with the Cold War of the U.S., NATO, and Soviet Union Warsaw Pact no longer being the focus. This required the entire timeline of the game to be rewritten, and while some gamers enjoyed the changes, fans of the original tended to ignore it. That led, in part, to the December 2010 announcement from 93 Games Studio that they were going out of business. But Twilight 2000 wasn't finished. In 2020, Free League Publishing announced they had picked up the license and began work on a new edition of the game. Released in 2021, Twilight 2000, role-playing in the World War III that never was, went back to the original concepts of the timeline, with some alterations. One of the major changes is that the Berlin Wall still fell, though instead of it leading to the fall of the Soviet Union, which it did in reality, the Soviet Union survived. That led to battles throughout Central Europe in 1998, and eventually to the apocalypse the game was known for. The settings for this new version were Poland and Sweden. If you're interested in checking out this version, head over to the Free League Publishing website, freeleaguepublishing.com. Okay, so we've covered the release history, and since I promised we'd get back into the background of the game, let me keep my promise. Nine times out of ten, a Twilight 2000 adventure is going to involve a military unit stranded in Central Europe well into World War III. What drew and continues to draw players to the game are the realistic depictions of military and social systems after a nuclear war. So how did we get to that point? In this alternate timeline, in 1995, a series of Sino-Soviet border conflicts becomes a full-fledged war between the Soviet Union and China. While it begins as a conventional ground-based war, it evolves into an exchange of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. Things really start rolling in 1996 when a group of East German and West German military officers decide they want to reunify the country, so they stage a coup d'etat against the Soviet forces in Germany. Again, check your history if you want to understand the real-world politics here, though reunification happened earlier in the real world. What about the U.S.? I mean, we all know that in reality, the U.S. doesn't tend to stay out of world conflicts. And I'm not trying to stir anything up here. I'm a 50-year-old American who's seen this stuff way more times than I'd care to admit, so we all know I'm not wrong here. Anyway, the U.S. and NATO start off trying to stay out of things. After all, this is basically a Soviet-Warsaw Pact fight, so let them destroy each other and pick up the pieces when they're done. For a while, they succeeded at that, but eventually they get drawn in as the conflict spreads. France decides to just nope on out. First, they pulled their troops from Germany. Then France pulls out of NATO completely, declaring themselves to be neutral. 
So between 1996 and 1997, we see a mostly conventional war being fought between NATO and the Warsaw Pact throughout Europe. There are a few instances of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons being used by both sides, but these are few and far between. The surprise comes at Thanksgiving 1997, when the Soviet Union hits a surprise first strike against targets in the U.S. and Europe. That causes the U.S. and Great Britain to launch nukes as a response against the Soviets. Thanks to their strong neutrality, France manages to avoid the majority of the damage, which is kind of a historical first for them in a world war, if you happen to know the history. In the aftermath, everyone is trying to recover so they can press some sort of advantage. The war does continue, but there are shortages of manpower, equipment, and fuel, and they're only getting worse. To top it off, in the U.S., there's a major issue forming between the civilian government and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which ultimately leads to a civil war, though it's not nearly as intense as the first one. That brings us to the summer of 2000. The European theater is at a near stalemate, so NATO plans a summer offensive across northern Poland and into the Baltics in an attempt to end the war. But the Warsaw Pact manages a counterattack and ends that plan. It results in several divisions and corps being completely eliminated, the loss of supply lines, a breakdown in high-level command, and a loss of cohesion of the various armies beyond the platoon unit. That last breakdown leads to some soldiers going native, which causes them to unite with the militias of free cities. Other soldiers become bands of marauding bandits, and others still try to find their way home. This is typically where a game begins, and the group is one that's stuck behind the lines. Now, as an interesting side note, the staff at GDW picked up here when they went to create another 300 years of history for the 2300 AD sci-fi game they were creating. The idea was that each staff member would pick a country and run it through 300 years of development. The overall winner? France, which became the supreme superpower in 2300. When 2nd Edition came out, the background had to be reworked due to the changes in actual world history over the previous six years. However, the designers kept running into the problem of how to future-proof their games, since that pesky real-world history kept intruding. They came up with their solution when they wrote up the background for version 2.2 in 1993, and it requires another real-world history briefing. In August of 1991, Boris Yeltsin was the leader of the Soviet Union, which was in the midst of opening its borders to the world and beginning to see the split of its various individual nations. At that time, a group of dissident Soviet leaders attempted a coup, the overall plan being to storm the offices and take out Yeltsin. In reality, it failed, and the breakup of the Soviet Union followed. In the game, however, the KGB decided to obey the coup leaders and assassinate Yeltsin, which would keep the communists in control, the Soviet Union together, and allow for the conflicts that were always a part of the game to continue. So with one historical adjustment, the game was future-proofed. Sorry, Boris. I usually take a large chunk of time during a deep dive to get into the mechanics of the game I'm breaking down, but really all you need to know about the additions up to fourth is that they run on the percentile system, and character builds work pretty much the same as in every other percentile-based game we've covered on the show to this point. Fourth edition was built on the Year Zero engine, and I know I mentioned once before that I was going to cover this in a future episode, so let's do that in three weeks. 
Sorry about that. The next two shows are already researched and written. Twilight 2000 picked up an Origins Award in 1985. It was the H.G. Wells Award for Best Role-Playing Rules of 1984. And what about reviews? Rick Swan and Greg Porter teamed up for the review in the May-June 1985 issue of Space Gamer. Swan's comment was that, quote, Whether or not Twilight 2000 becomes a standard remains to be seen, but it certainly fills a niche and does so successfully. I hope it finds an audience with role players and wargamers alike. As a design, it's nothing spectacular, but as a concept, it's an innovation, end quote. Porter stated, quote, All told, Twilight 2000 is a tragic waste of money. The nice concept and character generation system are completely overrun by innumerable flaws and hopeless violations of the laws of physics, end quote. All right, so that's one for and one against. Let's see if we can break the tie. Chris Felton reviewed it for the June 1985 issue of Imagine and said, quote, Overall, this is a good game, well worth clubbing together for if you belong to a group of experienced players who like free-running games and whose referee can run a scenario for minimal notes. If your referee has no experience of winging it and needs all the details worked out in advance, this is not the game for you, end quote. All right, I think we'll just call it a tie. Twilight 2000 came in at 35 in the 1996 Arcane Magazine poll of the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time. Paul Pettengale said this about it, quote, Pretty much all of the previous post-apocalyptic RPGs have been fairly fantastical and have been set sometime after the apocalypse. Twilight 2000 is realistic and set in the middle of the breakdown of European society, involving but not exactly cheerful, end quote. Since I already mentioned all the places you can find copies of the game if you're interested, I think we'll stop this deep dive here and move on to our second topic for the week. Aquilar is a medieval, demonical fantasy role-playing game. Designed by Richard Ibanez, it was released by Jacques International in 1990. It has the distinction of being the first role-playing game completely conceived and created in Spain. Jacques International's claim to fame prior to Aquilar was in producing and publishing Spanish translations of popular North American and British role-playing games. It's a long list of games, but it includes Paranoia, Pendragon, Star Wars, and RuneQuest. However, they were itching to produce their own original game, and that's where Richard Abanez comes in. He set out to create a medieval game that could compete with the other entries out there, and Aquilar was the result. Now, I'm going to flip the script here a bit and hit the background of the game, then the publication history, and that's because there are some changes in the various editions that it makes sense to understand the background for. Aquilar is set on the Iberian Peninsula during the 13th and 14th centuries, which historians have noted as the Middle Ages. Our players will be normal humans. Their lives involve walking the fine line of either having ordinary legal lives but living in drudgery and possible squalor, or use forbidden magic to lift themselves out of that and be more. For the record, about half of the first edition is devoted to demons and magic, so that should give you an idea of what Abanez expected the majority of players to choose. In the first edition, it was noted that Castile, Aragon, Portugal, Navarra, and Granada were feuding, but it was expected the game would take place in Castile or Aragon. 
That first edition also included a referee screen and a supplement that provided rules to extend the timeline of play into Madrid during the Renaissance in the 16th century. The first edition was published from 1990 till 1998, and La Caja de Pandora acquired the rights in 1999. They published the second edition, which stayed close to the original. What they added were supplements for playing the game in Navarra and Galatia. La Caja de Pandora published the game until 2002, when editorial projects Chrome got the license. They didn't publish a new edition. Instead, they focused on supplements. Lots of supplements. They released books detailing specific professions characters could have, a book detailing Granada, as well as numerous new adventures. They also reprinted some of the previous published supplements. They published through 2004 when they lost their license. Aquilar saw no new materials for the next seven years, but she still had some life left in her. Nosserol's Ediciones picked up the license and released the third edition in 2011. Between 2011 and 2018, they dropped 10 supplements for the game, bringing many of the subjects of previous books up to date for the new edition, plus providing new adventures for players to run through. However, as of this recording, there have been no new materials since 2018. Now, I should note that all of the materials I've mentioned to this point were published in Spanish. For those of us whose Spanish is limited to please, thank you, and a beer order, Nocturnal Media acquired the rights to publish English versions in 2018, and they published four books that year. Aquilar, Aquilar Brevarium, Asheris Medivalia, and Fatim Sperantia. I know I screwed those up. I apologize. Again, as of this recording, there have been no new materials since 2018. Let's take a quick look at the gameplay. Aquilar's system is based on Chaosium's basic role-playing system, which makes sense since the company had been publishing Spanish-language versions of the game for years. When it comes to character creation, it works like we've seen dozens of times before. Choose a class, with that class giving access to a number of skills. Die rolls are used to randomly determine abilities, and skill levels are figured from the ability scores. Task resolution works like it does in the percentile system, which means the percentiles rolled must be equal to or less than the relevant skill level in order to succeed, and the GM has the right to add modifiers to the roll. A combat round in Aqualar is 12 seconds. During that time, each player can use two actions, and they come from the Move, Attack, and Defend categories. Also, Armor has two ratings, how much damage a weapon has to do in order to pierce it in a single strike, and how much damage the armor can take overall before it's ruined. Now, that's a big change from a number of other medieval games out there, and if I'm being honest, I like it. Let's talk magic, since it's a big part of the game, potentially. What we have to note up front is that magic in Aquilar is seen as evil and demonic by most people. So the tension between a character's use of it and the commonly held beliefs about it are a major centerpiece of the game. It's an exceptionally complex magic system, and what makes it different from other games is that not only is success not a given, it's exceptionally difficult to achieve. Magic must be learned and practiced in private, since open use can lead to their being noticed by Fraternitas Vera Lucius, which is basically the Inquisition, and the penalty for using magic is death. So what did the critics think of the game? Lester Smith reviewed it for the October 1992 edition of Dragon Magazine. 
he believed the game was not suitable for an American release because, quote, the American public isn't ready for a game where the Spanish title translates as a ceremony for calling up major demons. Another stumbling block for American publishers in regards to the art is occasional full frontal nudity, both female and male, end quote. He went into more details concerning his issues with the game, but overall he found it too raw and realistic for his American tastes, even though he stated more than once that he really wanted to like it. If you're interested in checking it out for yourself, Aqualar is available from the Chaosium website. That's chaosium.com. And with that, we'll bring today's tour to a close. Okay, so I mentioned we're doing the Year Zero engine in three weeks because I've got the next two shows already researched and written. So what are we doing? Well, next week, we're going to cover the Planescape setting for D&D, and Birthright gets the nod the week after. They're the next two episodes due to feedback I got during our month-long rundown of modules, as folks kept asking when I was going to cover them. And since I like doing requests, your wish is my command. Also, I know I've announced this a few times, but it's never too soon to get the word out again. I want you to join all of us at Bad GM Productions at Archon 46, September 29th through October 1st. We're going to be live from the game floor all weekend long. We're going to be checking in, talking about the various going on. And you're hearing it here first. We're going to do a live episode of role-playing history at the convention. We're going to let the convention attendees choose our topic. We're going to probably put a list of options up there. But then we're going to do it live at the convention. That's Archon 46, September 29th through October 1st in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information on the convention, check out their website, archonstl.org. That's A-R-C-H-O-N-S-T-L dot org. In the meanwhile, check out our other fine podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. This is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. This season, we're building for the Fallout role-playing game. And while we're using the rules for that system, a number of our listeners have taken the materials we've produced and put them into the post-apocalyptic games that they're running with other systems. Hey, either way, it works for us. You can check out Bad GM's Campaign Build Along wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions, and you can check us out all over social media. I know I usually do a rundown of the sites during this part of the show, but we've added more recently. So rather than wear both of us out with the list, I'll point you to the info box for this show or to our website, badgmproductions.net. Next week, we take a look at the Planescape setting for Dungeons & Dragons. If you've played it, you know what makes it interesting. And if you haven't, you're in for a treat. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.